Uh, we are in Revelation 21, and uh, it's great to be back. I wanted to thank those who uh, were filled in for me while I was gone, Steve Lombardo of our uh, Sugar Grove campus, as well as Jared Winsloff, who did a great job sharing and opening the Word of the Lord. And it's a delight to be back. I was in Connecticut uh, speaking to a group of Russian Baptists, and I was up at Silver Birch this past week. And it was a great time, a uh, great family time, connecting with family, getting to know people across the campuses. If you have an opportunity to go to Silver Birch, I would heavily encourage you to do so. Uh, uh, it is just fantastic to get away, to reflect, and to be with other believers and hear God's word. And one of the things that we talked about while we were there was the subject of contentment. I'm finding that this is a subject that is appropriate to any context, is finding contentment. Because we seem to be in a world today that we have more, uh, more technological advancements, more things that we've ever had before, and it seems that nobody is ever happy. No matter how much we get, I, mean, I think of previous generations and what they went through and all of the things that they uh, saw and went through in their lifetime, and yet we have more technological advances. I mean, uh, in 1944, 1945, and I think I shared this just a couple weeks ago, but there was this uh, article that said in the years to come, in about 50 years, computers will be small enough to fit on two city blocks. That's how small they said computers are. Now we have more technology in our cell phone than many of them ever saw in their lifetime. And yet with all of these advancements, I mean, now you don't have to go down to the river to wash your clothes. You're in, most people in the United States don't have to do that. And we have automobiles, we have transportation, we have cell phones, we have the internet, we have grocery stores that are right there, walk-in clinics, have all of these things at our disposal, and yet nobody's happy. We ask ourselves why. It's because many, oftentimes, we're looking for happiness in the wrong place. And so Mick Jagger was right, I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, and it's true. And we see, though, in the Scripture that we can find true and lasting and abiding satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. He is the one that truly satisfies and gives us contentment. And when I say contentment, I mean inner satisfaction despite external circumstances. So it's this inner satisfaction that we have in and through Christ. But yet, even when we come to know Christ, there's still this vague notion. There's something that, we're, that is yet to come. There's, a, in some ways, what I like to call a holy discontent. That this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that no matter how much I, I live and work in this world, I'm never going to have complete, lasting contentment. I have an abiding contentment in Christ, but I don't have my contentment perfect or actualized until the time that I enter into the presence of Jesus Christ. And today what we're doing is we're going into the book of Revelation and we're going to see where this contentment is going to be perfected, when it's going to be actualized, when we will see God for who he is. And what I love about the book of Revelation, it's, it's a preview, a sneak preview of what is to come. It's like going to a play or musical. I don't know if you've ever gone to, to Broadway, if you've been down to the Paramount, and, and you receive that program, and it indicates what is about to happen. It's not just sufficient enough to read what's about to happen. You need to see it in front of you. And see, what Revelation does, it gives us a sneak preview of what we're going to see, who are believers in Christ, what we will experience, where the curtain is pulled back, and we will see God for who he is in all of his glory, all of his power, everything we'll see, and we will be in his presence forevermore. It's going to be a wondrous time. But the problem is, is that many of us, you know, we, we, we like the idea of heaven, but we don't like to think about it that much because that means one of two things. Either it means that we have to die to get there, and we don't like thinking about that. You know, we're fine with just dying as a, of a heart attack 
uh, when we're quite, you know, when we're, when we're sleeping. It's interesting, I was watching a special about Teddy Roosevelt just the other day, and he ended up dying in his sleep, and uh, one of the people that had, the current vice president at the time said the reason that he died in his sleep, because if he was awake, it would have been a fight, because he just was a fighter. And, but we don't want to see death coming, we want it to go, we want to go quietly, and just so we don't have to think about it. We don't want to deal with pain. So we, either we think about that or Jesus coming again. And for many of us, we think about that, and in some ways, it's, it's a joyous thought. Other people, it's a dread, because we think about all the things that we want to do before he goes, not realizing that those are trifles when we get into the presence of God, that they are so much greater and more grand than any other thing that we could experience on this side of heaven. And I've heard younger people usually like, well, I'd like to get married first before I go to heaven. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. You don't understand. (laughs) It's so much more glorious, more powerful, more wonderful than you could ever imagine. That that a wedding will never, ever even begin to capture. So we see then that we, we want to long, we should long for what God has for us. Now I want us to ask ourselves some questions before we get further into the message. Is to say, do I long for this? Why don't I long for this? Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I, I want to investigate who Jesus is. What does this mean? Well, you should say, well, what do I long for? Is God the longing of my heart? And why isn't he? And what happens if I, if I turn away from God? The Bible gives us that picture too. So today I want us to listen in and see what this just wonderful passage has for us as we have this holy discontent and, and see and wait for it to be fulfilled ultimately and in through him. So let's ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, please speak to us. Draw us near to yourself. Change our hearts. Use the, the sword of your spirit to remove the, the cancer of unbelief in our lives to help turn us back to you with fully devoted hearts. Uh, and Lord, help us to wean us off the things of this world that we might fully drink of you, enjoy you, love you in all your glory, and find our contentment and satisfaction in and through you. We ask your blessing on this now, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as uh, Corey was sharing, and I shared a little bit with her right before the service, uh, in October, and I've shared this story with you, I was in um, India, in Nagpur, and I'd heard about a ministry similar to what she's doing called Freedom Firm, and it was started by Greg and Mala Malstead. Uh, Greg used to be the director for International Justice Mission in India, and left that position because he had a burden to rescue girls who had been caught in uh, sex trafficking, minor, spe- minor girls especially. And uh, our own um, Evangeline, uh, her sister, works with this ministry, and they connected me with it. And when I was in India, I got whisked away to see this ministry firsthand. I'd heard about it. I'd gotten emails about it. I'd heard some stories. I wanted to see it firsthand. And we went winding through the, cities of Na- the city of Nagpur. Nagpur is a quite large city, several million people. And we're taken back into where I met many of these workers. And the workers seemed to me that they were college age. They looked like they could have been interns. They were young people, but these were people that were going on raids, going into these brothels to help rescue these girls, and they were, they were on the front lines, as front line as you could possibly be. I mean, risking their lives to be beaten, even killed, uh, putting themselves out there, and uh, seeing just their devotion really encouraged my heart, and I asked them to take me to see where some of these girls were. And so we got in a car, and we made our way to a different part of the city, and we, we came across this big structure that was set back into the grassy area. The grass was dying around it. The gates were, uh, you know, 
kind of rickety, but um, it looked almost like a, like a dormitory or a, or a prison. And it had, there had bars on the windows, and I was wondering, just questioning myself, why were there bars on the windows? These girls were set free. They're not in prison. And we, we, the gates opened, and it almost looked from someone from uh, our perspective that it was an abandoned area, but it wasn't. It was in full use. And so our car made its way back. A police officer greeted us, walked us into this building, just concrete floors, paint coming off the sides of the walls. And uh, they needed to kind of vet us, make sure we know who we, who we were before they took us in to see these girls. So they, they brought us upstairs. We sat and we talked with another police officer while they were checking us out. The person in charge came to us, talked with us for a little bit. And as this woman is talking to us, I could see uh, back in one little wing away from me were these small windows, and I could see all of these just beautiful colors of, of uh, different saris were hanging to dry on these clotheslines, and I could see little brown eyes peeking out, curious about who I was and why I was there, and, and they were just as curious of me as I was for them, and finally, the person in charge says that we can go in, and so I'm with my, my host, Evangeline's sister, and uh, we walk in. And they set us down on uh, some chairs in front of these girls, and we're in this concrete room. There's many different kind of bunk beds where the different women are, and a little child is playing, the, the child of one of the women that are there. And they bring these women in to sit down, and they sit on the floor, and they, they're staring back up at us. And I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how, what to, 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 how to communicate. Uh, I'm staring at the eyes of these girls, realizing that some of them were quite young. Some were 10 years old. Uh, one girl that was there that I had read about just days before, she'd been rescued. This was her third time. And I found out why they had bars on the windows and on the doors is because many of these girls, once they're rescued, the traffickers want to get them back because each girl is worth about $62,000 to a trafficker. So it's worth a lot of money. So these guys would... would um, just give bribes, weed their way into this place to coax these girls, to tell them that they are nothing, to say that they're never going to have any value in society. Nobody wants them. They, they can never do anything. Many of them can't read. They're, some are from farm towns. I mean, and you start hearing their stories. Some, their parents leased them into this lifestyle. Others were young, and their husbands forced them into it in order to get money. Uh, some had been dedicated to temple prostitution, to certain gods when they were young, and they would be servicing the Hindu priests when they were eight and nine years old, which is basically sanctified pedophilia. And then after they're done with that, they go into the full brothel and they live their life just being taken advantage of by all these people that are there. And my heart was breaking as I'm looking at these girls' faces, and I see uh, one, two, girl, two girls catch my, my eye immediately. One girl, her face was completely disfigured because someone had thrown, thrown battery acid on her and totally dis, disfigured her face permanently. Uh, another girl kept staring off into the distance, and her, she kept kind of moving around. because. And I asked Catherine, I said, why is she doing that? She said she's completely deaf. She doesn't know sign language. No one has ever worked with her. She's just been in this life her entire life she knows nothing else and doesn't even know how to communicate with people and so I sat there and I'm staring at the faces of these girls and one the 10 year old girl just I'm looking at her I'm like 10 years old I I, I didn't know what to say this anger welled up within me and I I I lean over and I said I want to see the girl that I had read about that had just been rescued three days before and I'm looking at her face it's a beautiful girl and I I said well how many times has she been trafficked? They said, we don't know, but this is our third time being rescued. She's gone back every time, but this time we believe that she understands that Christ is the one that sets the captives free. 
and she'd come to embrace Christ. And that made my heart just rejoice to see that she could have new life and purpose in Christ. But I saw another girl, and I said, well, how old is she? They said, she's probably 12, 14. And they said, the day that we rescued her, she'd service 26 men that day. It just broke my heart. And there was anger that welled up within me. This discontent that I want justice for them, that I don't want to see, I, I want to, them to be alleviated of their suffering, to set free and to have these people that perpetrated such crimes, such horrific things, be brought to justice. And you see, when we get into heaven, we will enter into Christ's presence forevermore. There will be justice dispensed completely. We will have ultimate contentment and there will be no suffering and no pain ever again. So when I, when I think of Christ and I think of those girls, I long for the day when Jesus comes again. When there will be no more suffering. Well, I will not have to stand at the casket of someone who died of a drug overdose, who took their own life, or suffering the ravages of cancer. I long for that day when there will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pain, there will be no more rape, no more abortion, no more sexual immorality, no more violence perpetrated against people. I long for that day. I long for that day when Christ will come in all of his glory and we will see him as he is. And I think this passage is what it is showing us is that we need to be longing for the consummation. This consummation, when he comes again, when he sets everything up, and I'm not going to get into all the details and all of the symbolism that is involved within this passage. I want to focus more on the concrete things that we know we can apply and understand without having to be complete biblical scholars. But we long for this consummation when he comes again, when all these justices will be dispensed and all wrongs will be righted. And, and what can we see here? Well, we long, first of all, for a new place to live. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God was with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God is giving us a complete new place to live. And we need to, we need to recognize that, that God has given us this place and we are long for it because we have a desire uh, for something that is beyond what this world has to offer. Now, I'd like to call that quote by C.S. Lewis, if you would, Carl, uh, because he's shown us, and I think Lewis captures this so well, he says this, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He continues on. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to suggest the real thing. That it is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only kind of echo, a copy, echo, or mirage. He continues, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death or Jesus comes again. 
I must never let it, go, let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to the, the other country and to help others do the same. He continues, and I love this next part here. He says, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us feel fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the delights that or the splendors we see, but all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We should long for that day, long for that consummation, long for that time where we enter into his presence. We shouldn't dread it. If you are a believer and trusted in Christ for for, uh, I mean, place your faith in him that he has died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again for your justification, that you might be declared legally righteous in the sight of God. There should be no fear of death any longer, but only the, the glorious hope of what is to come. So we long for this new place to live where, where everything will be right. It will be paradise. And, and there have been men that have tried to set up paradise on earth, and it's never worked. Because why is that men still have sin on this side of eternity, but on that side there will be no more sin? See, we long for a new place to live. We also long for a new people to live with. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. It means God has purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every color, every background, every culture, every language. God has purposed. It's been his plan from the very beginning to reach all people from all over the world. This is where prejudice no longer exists there. There are the people of God, and we will be with them forever and ever. Now, for some of us, the thought of that is not a good one. You know, we've, we've heard the, the little saying is that to, to dwell with the saints in heaven, that will be glory. But to dwell with them on earth, that is a different story. You ever heard of that? I mean, we, we, but, but it's because all of these personality issues, and we have personalities we just don't click with, Right? We have people that we disagree with, we have problems, we have people with their own agendas, we have people that have not been very friendly toward us or don't understand us or seem to, to really not get us and say very mean things about us. And, and if they're Christian, we say, hey, if they're Christian, I don't want to be one. But that's not how all of those personality issues, all of the sins, all of our, our misdirective motives, they will all be removed. We will see each other in the splendor of being redeemed. So we'll have a new place to live and a new people to live with. And, and that means, by the way, that should affect us in the here and now because there is no way that we will be able to grow spiritually apart from the deep involvement in a community of other believers. You can't live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends, without a family of believers in which you find a place. Tim Keller, he talked about, and I've shared this story uh, before, that C.S. Lewis was a part of a group called the Inklings. They were other authors, and they would read one another's works and encourage one another and critique one another, of which uh, uh, there were several members of it, but some of the most consistent ones were a man by the name of Charles Williams, and another J.R.R. Tolkien, he of the Lord of the Rings fame. They called him Ron, where you get that from J.R.R. I have no clue. And uh, C.S. Lewis, which they called Jack. I don't know why that is, but, except his name was Clive, and probably don't want to call him Clive. So you had Jack, Ron, and then you had Charles. Now, uh, when Charles died, uh, Lewis writes about how it affected him, and not only just him, but his relationship with Tolkien. 
He said, you would think now that I have the opportunity, uh, now that Williams is gone, I'd have more of Tolkien to myself. I can spend more time with him and get to know him better. But he said, I actually have less because there was something about, that, about Tolkien that Charles Williams' life brought out in him that no one else did. You have friends like this, do you not? People that you talk to that, you, that, that bring out something in you that no one else does. I mean, you have someone that you talk to about like that? I, I have a, a buddy from, that I went to high school with. When we get on the phone, we've been out of high school over 20 years now. When we talk on the phone, it's like we're in high school all over again. And this is a physical therapist. He's, he's leading a group of different doctors. He's very professional. And he gets on the phone with me, and suddenly we're back to when we're young, and we're making jokes. And he says, you know, you're the only person that can bring this out in me. And... Uh, there's something about one another that bring something about who God is and who that other person is that teaches us about God. That's why we need to be in fellowship with one another and grow in our relationship, not just with God, but with one another. Now let's look at verse 3 again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be, will be with them as their God. See, we will have a new place, a new people, and we will live where God's presence will abide with us forever. God's presence will abide with us forever. God will be with us. Now, it's interesting. I, I, uh, Tim Keller does this exercise, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and he uh, did this exercise where he surrounded himself with a group of atheists and basically just threw out a question on the table and let them ask it whatever question they wanted to. And one question that came to them was this. They said, could we convince you that Christianity is not true? How would you answer that? Because if he would say, there's no way that you could possibly convince me, they'd say there's no room to even have a discussion because we'll never change your mind. You're not open to what we have to say. So there's no dialogue, no reason to continue on further. So what did he say? He gave this masterful answer. He said, you know, could you, all in this room, you're very smart people, could you intellectually convince me that Christianity is not true? Yes. This is a pastor of a thousands of member church, written several books on the New York Times bestsellers list. But he said, you could intellectually convince me. However, you're going to have a hard time convincing me experientially because there's things that I've experienced. There's been forgiveness and, and times where I've been in God's presence. That you're going to have a hard time convincing me to doubt. Have you ever experienced the presence of God in your life? Where God just showed up in the room in such a wonderful, amazing way that you couldn't help but just stand in awe or silent or feel maybe tears just rush over you? I mean, there was a time right when I was getting ready to preach in India, and I know many people were, were praying for me, and I, right before I walked up, I experienced the presence of God in a way that I had never experienced in all my life. And I felt like God himself had showed up in that room and that there were like angels guarding each of those doors and his name was going to be glorified in a very powerful way. There's something wonderful. That's why David prayed in the Psalms, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, to see him in his holy temple, high and lifted up, to experience God's presence. Now God doesn't always give this manifest presence, but here we see in heaven it will be there manifestly in ways that we cannot imagine. His presence will abide, be manifestly there forever and ever. And will be in his presence that there will be pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I like that song by Chris Rice, Deep Enough to Dream in Brilliant Colors I Have Never Seen. I mean, think about it. We have these different five senses in which we experience the world. We have taste, touch, sound, um, sight, and uh, is that five? Smell. Thank you. I was a theology major. Um, So we have these things. Now, it's amazing how some people have an acute sense that is greater and more powerful than what their friends have. For example, there are people that, that can taste things. Um, in very intricate ways. It's like those, those coffee connoisseurs. Anybody here a coffee snob? Coffee snob? I mean, there are some people that I was even seeing a guy on Facebook. He goes, I need a grinder that just grinds it completely evenly all the way through. I mean, these are people that taste it and they go, Uganda, 2012, there was rain that week, and a goat named Billy. Just because of how they could taste so intricately. I mean, we have that with people that have very acute senses of smell. Uh, I mean, or, or sight. And I'm amazed at just how, especially how women can see color. You know, it's actually been proven that women can see more color than men. Like anyone has to prove that. I mean, seriously. Especially on the red spectrum. But, I mean, men, you know, men see, like, basically that 12 box of Crayola that you had as a kid. That's all men do. And women have those, like, 585 million uh, Crayola box things. And uh, I remember as a kid going, I'm so happy to have the big crayon. And I don't know what any of these colors, they all look the same to me. But women see different colors. And it's even how people can see different things and the speed of different things. Like, I'm amazed at baseball hitters. These guys that have such intricate sight that they can see a 98-mile-an-hour fastball coming at them and they can see the seams of it. I mean, it's incredible to me that how people can have that or, or hear certain things. Like people that have perfect pitch, that can hear just the intricate detail of a note if it's on or off. And we amaze, we're amazed at these people that can see these things and experience them and, and have this full use of that sense. And that's how we will all be in glory. And there won't be any disappointment. There's never going to be a wrong note played. Matter of fact, there are going to be tones that, that this scale that we can hear, we, we won't even be able to hear. I mean, we can't hear here, but we will there. Colors that we can't even imagine in all of their brilliance. Touches that we can't, nothing on this earth can really prepare us for. That's what it will be. There will be pr- pleasures forevermore, and we will be in the full presence of Almighty God. Now, looking through this telescope of Revelation to see this far-off event, and it could be near than we think, helps us long for the consummation when Christ reigns manifestly, and it helps us to be looking forward to the new creation. Looking forward to the new creation. Now, what's going to happen in this new creation? What's going to be there, and what's not going to be there? I mean, I've given you a preview that a lot of these limitations that we've had will be removed, but there's some things that will not be there. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's not going to be any more crying. No more crying. No reason to cry. No pain. No, no terrible things that have happened. No sense of loss or mourning. That'll all be gone. No more crying. And it will show that death itself will have ceased. Death itself will have ceased. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, it says that the devil uses the fear of death to intimidate men. And we will no longer have anything to be afraid of. 
Death will itself have ceased. And Lewis, as he captured, he said that death will be reversed. Time itself will be turned backward. There'll be no more death, which means there'll be no loss, no sense of loss, regret, shame, or guilt. None of that. Death will be no more, will have ceased. No more crying. Death will have ceased because the curse will be removed. See, each one of us is under a curse. It's not just the cubs, okay? We're all under a curse. And it's a curse that is much bigger and very real. Very real. And it's one that is, comes because of the disobedience of our first parents in the garden. And it's passed down to every one of us without exception. That we're all under this curse. And all of creation itself is cursed. There will be no more curse. Look at verse 4 with me again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The old is gone. The new, the best, the better has come. And look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. See, an aspect of the curse was death, but it was also creation itself was subjected to it. That we have imperfect memories, that we will experience sickness, that we will go through suffering, we will experience injustice. The curse itself will be removed. As Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 22 says, and, and the Holy Spirit through Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom for the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I don't know, uh, I mean, obviously there are many women here who have given birth. I don't know if any men have been in the room when childbirth has occurred. It is beautiful, but it's also terrifying. I, I remember going, uh, when we were, uh, Elijah, my third child, was born, and we, were, we went to the hospital, and uh, some of you know Keith Duff, who is the executive pastor at our Sugar Grove campus, and he and his wife, Kate, were due just two days before we were. And so Keith and I were just joking around back and forth when we'd see one another, that we were go- one of us was going to win, we were going to beat the other person. So the day came, it was December uh, 20th, I think we went into the hospital and uh, we went in there. There was not too many people that were there giving birth that night. And we were joking around that we were beating the Duff family, as I'm joking with the nursing staff. So we start walking around trying to simulate labor, get it to happen. And we come back around to the nurse's station and they're laughing at us. And they said, what was the name of that family uh, that you mentioned? I said, that's the Duff family. He said, they're coming in right now. I was like, let's do this, honey. Come on. We got to do this. We have to beat them. She's like, shut your face. I want this out more than you do right now. Okay? So we start walking around, and Keith and Kate come in, and I see Keith. And Keith and I are texting one another in between contractions. All right? Seriously. And we're going back and forth. We're going to win. And we have the same midwife, and they're just a door apart from one another. So the woman's coming in, going out, going in, going out. And we're texting one another. We're yelling at her to come over. And she's like, you're not ready yet. And she'd run back to the other one. And, and, uh, and, and, but we're, we're still trying to stimulate labor because I'm like, honey, we've got to make this thing go faster. Come on. Let's do some jumping jacks. Let's do some stuff. Get this thing moving. And so we're, we're, we're uh, walking around, and I, and I hear this awful sound, and it's this elevator that's like squealing. You ever had that when you hear an elevator just scream, and it makes this high-pitched sound? And I went up to the nurse's station, and I'm like, you've got to do something about that elevator. That is terrible. It's just this loud, awful noise. They said, that's not an elevator. That's Mrs. Duff. 
uh, she just was in pain. And I've shared this story with Kate, so it's okay. But labor is not a pretty thing. I mean, watching it happen and seeing that, that's how it says that creation is. It's in this groaning, this pain of childbirth, of waiting for what is to come. And even, even as I watch my wife and go through this great, amazing pain, to see all that pain just vanish in a moment, the, day, the moment she held that baby in her hand, to know that it was worth it, was well worth it. Now, I don't want to put words in her mouth there. She might be like, yeah, it says you. No. I know that it was worth it to hold that baby, to see that child. See, the whole creation groans in the pains of childbirth until now. It's pretty fascinating. Notice verse 5 and following. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without merit. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the destitute, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It is done. It is completed. What I love about this is he's saying, write it down, put it in there. This is going to happen. God is calling his shot. There's something that we, we see in a culture when someone calls and they say it's going to happen and we know the odds are against them. I mean, people make boasts all the time and a lot of times they, they fall short. But it's when someone truly calls it and we see it and everybody comes around and wants to see that amazing thing. Think of Babe Ruth and he's calling his shot that he's going to hit it and he does and people go crazy. God is calling his shot. This is how it's going to happen. He's showing what is to come. It's for sure. He's giving us what is to occur. And he's saying now to the one who conquers, this is how you should live, knowing that that's going to happen. You need to direct your life and live in such a way to show that you are not arguing and fighting for victory. You're, argue, you're living from a position of victory. That this is going to happen and this is how you are to live your life and the knowledge that this is going to come to pass. So we need to make sure that we are living as conquerors. Conquerors. You know, the scripture says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39 says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, through Christ. Not on ourselves, but it's through Jesus and him alone. And his victory now is our victory by faith in him. That he conquered sin and death. And that through him we can be conquerors. Matter of fact, more than that. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors and we need to learn to live like that. It's through Christ and He alone that we have this victory. His victory is our victory, and it's available to anyone. That's why he says, to him who thirsts, come drink of me. If you want to believe, put your faith in me. You have, you have lived a life completely away from God. He is giving you an invitation to drink of him and be satisfied. 
And be content, not just in this world, but in the ultimately realized in the one that is to come. That you will have life, you will have forgiveness, there will be no more shame, no more guilt. The fear of death will be removed, and it's available to all of us. Every single person, every tribe, and every tongue, every person in this world, it is available to them through Christ and Him alone. And how do we live as conquerors? It begins with this, placing your faith in Christ alone for salvation. You can't save yourself. There's no great deed that you can do in the sight of God that's going to outweigh your bad. It's through him and his finished work on the cross for you and what he did, that he died on the cross for your sins and mine. And that he rose again from the dead, that we might be justified showing his victory over sin and death that it could not hold him. And it's through faith in Christ alone for salvation. And secondly, after we place our faith in Christ alone, it involves us fighting the good fight of the faith. That's why it says we are more than conquerors. Conqueror is a fighter. We have to be fighting the good fight of faith. It means sharing the truth of Christ, knowing that we are ambassadors. We are pleading for people to be reconciled unto God. It means giving and going and praying and going to the deep, dark places, talking to your, your friends, your neighbors, going across the sea and going across the street. It means learning to put to death the misdeeds of our sinful flesh. It means fighting the good fight. It means watching what you put in your mind. And what internet sites you are surfing on and what programs you're watching. That you're not capitulating and compromising with this culture. But you're watching whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy. I have people say, well, this is a Christian issue. You know, it's a, it's a freedom issue. The freedom, yes, for freedom Christ has set us free. Yes, it is. But we are to seek what is pure, what is noble. Not putting in our minds such banality in TV shows that present complete nudity. No! That is sinful and wrong. Wrong! I've seen too many Christians say it's okay to watch the show. Christ died to set you free from that so you don't do it anymore. Not continually indulge in it. Well, they say, well, the Bible presents that. The Bible presents it as a lesson that doesn't put you images in your head and show it for you for entertainment. I am so sick and tired of so many Christians say it's not that big a deal. It is! And, and the devil is luring so many Christians away and moving them from their pure undefiled no sh- devotion to Christ and making them part of the world that they can have no effect whatsoever. If Christ is in you and working through you and his power is in you, then you will not be satisfied with the things of this world. Turn it off. Change the channel and watch what you put in your brain. So let's get back. Fighting the good fight. Let's look back at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The idea of sonship is part of a family. You have a marvelous, guaranteed, and fabulous future in God's family. Can you imagine that? Being a part of God's family? You know, when I was a kid, there were certain TV shows that I watched that I wanted to be in that family. I didn't have a dad. My dad had died. It was just me and my mom. And I'd see some of these TV dads, and again, it's an image. I want to be in that family. There was, that presented to me as if it was all great. And granted, it wasn't. And again, it was fiction. But see, there's a future that we have in God's family where we are accepted, where we are loved, we are embraced, we'll no longer be rejected, we'll no longer have hurtful things done to us. 
There's something wonderful about having a parent that just loves unconditionally and wraps their arms around you. You ever had that? Some of you have had very abusive households that you grew up in. Your parents said you were worthless. There's others that have been blessed with wonderful, God-fearing, loving Christian parents. And I think we need to see that God is our ultimate loving heavenly father that loves us, gave his son so that we can become sons and daughters, adopted into his family. We have a wondrous and fabulous future in God's family. And lastly, it gives us a warning. It gives us a warning. Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a warning here. Not everybody gets into heaven. For those who reject Christ and live their life outside of his lordship, there is a warning of a terrifying and torturous final destination. Sorry, I have a little error for tortuous. supposed to be torturous. That's my fault. Torturous final destination. Not everybody gets into heaven. You know, I was reminded of this, this, this reality. When I became a Christian, I, I mean, I had grown up in church. I hadn't really surrendered my life until I was in uh, the last semester of my senior year of high school when I really came to give my life to Jesus after I was just confronted with the reality of the sin in my life. And I made it my mission at that time in all of my uh, awkwardness, not knowing anything of sharing Christ with all my classmates. And I grew up in a public school, um, but it was a small school. And uh, as I was there, I, I made sure that I shared Jesus as much as I could with every classmate to the point where some just were very... Uh, open in their frustration and rejection of Jesus. And two of those classmates, uh, at least, uh, I kept contact with over the years. And in the last two months, those same two classmates have died. Um, and, and you're in a class as small as mine, that's a big deal. And I, what bugs me is how people grieve on Facebook. You see people grieve all the time. You know, the angels, are this, they're now, uh, or what is it? Heaven has received a new angel. Where do they get that garbage it's bad theology. Just bad theology. The scripture is very clear. Man is destined to live once and then, or die once and then face judgment. And only through Christ can we have salvation. And people are saying, you're such a good person. And I'm reading the comments of these guys. And yet I have seen their posts over the last several years. And there was dirty joke after dirty joke and pictures of them just hanging out and doing all of these horrible things. And unless there was some type of repentance and place their faith in Christ, they didn't enter into glory. They entered into hell. And that's a reality of something that we need to come face to face with and quit playing around. Death is the great leveler, the reminder that this world is not all that there is, that there is a, there is a holy God and that we have sin and that we will die. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God through, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's only through him, for there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. And that is through Jesus and him alone. But the Bible says here, though those who have placed their faith in Christ are genuinely repentant and, and turned from their sin and embraced him, that there is a, a glorious, wonderful home that awaits. For those who reject, there is a hell that awaits. I pray that you have the former, not the latter. That it might be you might enter into glory and look forward to what he has to come where that ultimate contentment will be realized. 
I'd like to close here just with a couple of final thoughts. My, you know, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, once said that people will be in hell asking to have one sin removed from their sentence. So painful is it that to have one sin removed will somehow alleviate their suffering. Don't think you can just continue in sin and add sin to sin and that's not that big a deal. It's gonna be awful. But for those who truly love Jesus, there is an imaginable joy that awaits. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia ends the line in which in the wardrobe this way. He says, and as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end. For us, this is the, the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What a great picture of what glory will be like. May it be true for all of us where contentment is perfected and we will spend eternity in rapturous joy worshiping God and glowing in our limitless knowledge of him forever and ever. Amen.